0: If you're a guest today, today's message is going to be a a little bit different than we normally are. Uh, This is a teaching ministry. We we, we learn and we study the Bible and we apply it to our lives. So if you're a guest, understand this isn't the norm. I I think you're going to enjoy it. I'm not apologizing for it. But just understand that we're going to do something a little different today. Now, now how many of you are are my history lovers? You love history out there. I have so many people, when I do historical things, they come up and they say, oh, I just love it when you do history like that. Well, right now, say with me, Mmm, this is gonna be good. All right, now, for some of you that history isn't your bag, then I'm gonna challenge you to embrace what the Apostle Peter said in 1 Peter. He says that we should be prepared to give a defense for the hope that we have in the things of God. We should be prepared to give a defense of that. In other words, when when people ask us, why do you believe that church stuff? Why do you believe that Bible stuff? Why do you even believe that? Well, we ought to be able to come back with and say, well, listen, I don't do it by blind faith. I don't just believe it because I believe it. There are reasons why I believe what I believe. And, And so... Today, now, now we're going to cover a lot of stuff real quickly. So for those of you who like to take notes, I want to foretell you that what I've got conceptually, not every single thing, but conceptually I've got for a handout. After the service, you can go back to the resource table and you can get it in the handout. So you don't feel like you've got to get everything copied down because there's no way you're going to be able to do it. All right, so with that in mind, this week I was looking for a transition in our, our series Kid Stuff for Adults we, I told you last week we were done with the Genesis part of it, and many of you got the series, and by the way, if you go after the church, you can get this particular CD for free and just give, put it in your series, but we're going back to Genesis because as I was looking for this transition to go into the book of, of Exodus, the Lord brought a passage to my mind that just gripped my attention, and I couldn't get away from it, so I started I, I to stop and say, okay, God, where are you going with this? Let me share it with you. If you have your Bible, open your Bible to Genesis, first book in the Bible, chapter 47. If you got it on your iPhone, open it up there. But let me read the passage to you. Let me set the stage. Last week we saw that, that the famine in Egypt that Joseph had, had prophesied to Pharaoh was, was happening. And we just saw the big family reunion. Uh, Jacob and, and uh, Joseph's 11 brothers came down and they're reunited. They're now safe in Egypt. We're probably in about the third year of that famine now. Scripture says Genesis 47 beginning verse 13. There was no food however in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying and he brought the Pharaoh's palace, okay? So famine's going on, people need food now. So they're going to bring in all their money. They're buying food. It goes on to say in verse 15, when the money of all the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, All Egypt came to Joseph and said, give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is used up. So now they're coming. Now we're getting to that famine. It's going to be seven years long. And they said, we don't have any more money. We don't have anything to buy any more food with. So why should we die in front of your eyes? You've stored up all this food. We know you've got it. We don't have any money to buy it. So Joseph goes on in verse 16, says, then bring me your livestock. He said, I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. He says, and he brought them through that year with food in exchange for their livestock. He said, okay, you don't have any more money? Well, let's barter. You bring me all your livestock and I'll, I'll sell you food in exchange for your livestock. So they bring them all the livestock. Verse 18, when that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, we cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone, our livestock belongs to you, there's nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes? We and our lands as well. Now they come back and they say, listen, this thing's still going on. There's no end to this thing in sight. We don't have any more food. You already own our livestock. We got nothing left but the land that we own and ourselves. Now they come up with the solution. So they go on to say, verse 19, buy us and our land in exchange for the food, and we will with our land be in bondage to Pharaoh. They say all we got left is us. And listen, our life is no good if we're going to starve to death, and our lands are no good if if, if we're going to starve to death. And so we are turning over the deeds to our land. We are putting ourselves in servitude to Pharaoh, and that's exactly what happens. It goes on to say, the land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. Now, now, it's really easy to miss what's actually going on right here, because I did many times, reading through it. But when I start to think about this, what actually is transpiring right now is Joseph has just changed the entire socio-political order of Egypt. See, I thought that even at this time that Pharaoh was the supreme ruler of Egypt. But, I, but this got me thinking, okay, if this all happened, then maybe I wasn't accurate. So I went back and I did some some research into ancient Egypt. And here's what I found out. That originally when Egypt was just getting going, it was a feudal system, kind of like in the Middle Ages. There were landowners. They were feudal lords. They owned the land and they would hire people to do their land or they had slaves to do their land. But they had power. They had influence because they were property owners. Under Joseph and during the seven years of famine, they got so hungry that they turned it all over to Pharaoh. So now, Pharaoh becomes the supreme ruler of Egypt. He owns everything and everybody. In fact, as history in Egypt goes on, that's how the the subsequent pharaohs are able to fund all this building of the pyramids and all the building of their temples and shrines and all that kind of stuff that we even go visit today in the land of Egypt. And so Joseph changes everything. Now, with that in mind... That Joseph changed the entire social, political, economic culture of all of Egypt. Then why is there no reference of Joseph in ancient Egyptian history? I mean, he radically changed the whole culture. He changed the whole land. So why is there no reference of him? Of this important person in his history? So Joseph... Is he really this amazing leader, or is he just a legend? Is it all made up? Now, I've got to share a lot of material with you, so hang with me, because I've got to set the stage for where we're going with this, okay? In answering this question, is Joseph a historical great leader in history, or is he just a legend? That's exactly what the academic world has said for years. Daniel Anderson, writing for creation.com, says this. For years, the popular media has mocked the biblical accounts of Joseph and Moses and the Passover and the Exodus as being completely incompatible with current Egyptian chronology, current Egyptian history. Goes on to say, year after year, we've been told by numerous scholars that the events in the book of Genesis and Exodus are nice legends but they're devoid of any historical or archeological merit. They're good stories. They're neat. They're they're inspiring, but that's all they are. They're just legends. He goes on to say, however, a new wind is blowing, an emerging pool of scholars representing diverse backgrounds. These aren't all just Christian guys trying trying to make the Bible the true thing. He says, have been openly calling for a drastic reduction In Egyptian chronology, in other words, they're saying this, there's a whole new group of Egyptologists, there's a new group of historians. Now I'm going to tell you, this is controversial, not everyone's going to agree with this in the academic world, but there's a new movement afoot who is saying, you know what, we need to reduce ancient history when it comes to to Egypt because Egypt's not as ancient as we thought it was. Going on, he says, such a reduction would serve to line up the historical and archaeological records of Egypt and the Old Testament. And by doing so, the reliability of Genesis, Exodus, and the entire Old Testament will have to be reconsidered as a viable source of historical truth. He says, if this is correct, then it changes everything. Now again, it's just not one person. It's just not one guy. David Rule, in his book, A Test of Time, the Bible, From Myth to History, says, Ramses II should be dated to the 10th century B.C., some 350 years later than the date that has been assigned to him by the orthodox chronology. Peter James, in his book, Centuries of Darkness, says the dates of Egyptian dynasties need to be reduced by hundreds of years, specifically dynasties 21 through 24, saying everything is all messed up. We don't have an accurate timeline. They're saying that the conventional chronology of Egyptian history, as they're revisiting it, is spurious at best. Now, how did things get so messed up, if that's true? How did it get so messed up? You might be surprised to learn that it all got messed up with the best of intentions, and when I say the best of intentions, I'm talking about from a biblical worldview. I'm talking about from a Christian worldview. It wasn't the non-believers. It wasn't the pagans. It wasn't the atheists that caused the problem. The problem actually came out of Christianity, but with the best of intentions. I'm saying, say, well, what's that about? Let me show you. In his book, the Genesis of Israel and Egypt, Genesis again, then it's the beginning. Emeritus Sweeney says this. One of the perennial ambitions of Christian Europeans throughout the centuries has been the verification of the Bible. In other words, he says, one thing Christians have always tried to do, Christians have tried to prove that the Bible's inspired word of God. That's what he's saying. He's saying, now, beginning with Eusebius in the fourth century, Eusebius was a Roman historian of Greek birth, but was also a bishop in the, the Christian church. We're talking the 4th century. This is the 300s A.D. He says, beginning with Eusebius in the 4th century, Christian writers sought to enlist the histories of Mesopotamia and Egypt to answer the attacks of those who viewed the Old Testament as fable or even worse, as propaganda. In other words, from the beginning, I mean from 300 A.D., they're already attacking the Bible, saying, ah, it's just a bunch of stories. Ah, it's just a bunch of legends. Worse, they're saying it's propaganda. It's religious propaganda. You're trying to pollute the mind of thinkers and to believe in all this stuff. He goes on to say, in this spirit, with all that in mind, and Eusebius wanting to demonstrate to the world that no, the Bible is valid. The Bible is reliable. It is the inspired word of God. Employing, now here, don't miss this part. Employing the Egyptian history of the Ptolemaic scholar Manetho constructed a chronology of Egypt based on biblical timelines. All right, let, let me explain where I'm going now. This all has a purpose, by the way. Hang with me. Manetho is a third-century BC priest of Egypt, and he writes an Egyptian chronology, an Egyptian history, and lists the kings in the order that they happen in Egypt. So he creates a chronology. Eusebius in the Fourth century in three hundred now A.D. uses his conclusions, uses his chronology as the framework, as as the the point that he's going to base all his conclusions on. The problem is, when he did that, remember what he's trying to do. He's trying to prove the Bible true, and he's trying to make it sync with Egyptian history. None of it's working. It all crashes and burns. He can't put it together. And because he can't put it together, no matter matter how hard he tries, it turns the academic world against, once again, the idea that the Bible has any reliability at all. In fact, as Sweeney continues, in time, it was to be suggested that all such identifications were impossible. Any attempt to try to make the Bible and Egyptian history and all history link and sink, it's just impossible. It goes on to say, since the characters mentioned in the Bible, guys like Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, and the rest, were not the great men that the scriptural sources implied. The conclusion was this. All those guys, they weren't great like the Bible says they are. In fact, it says, if they existed at all, they must have been such minor figures that the Egyptians didn't even think worthy to make mention of them in their history. See, that's the conclusion. The whole thing that Eusebius was trying to do, boomeranged, and the whole thing crashed and burned. Now, here's what happened subsequently. Over the centuries, Eusebius' Egyptian system became the conventional chronology for the kingdom of the Nile. In other words, in the academic world, that became the gospel. Eusebius's chronology, Eusebius' Egyptian history, that became the accepted standard. This opinion gradually took root among scholars and soon became the new orthodoxy. This is ground zero now for human history. Was Eusebius's Egyptian chronology. Any attempt to find proof for the Bible and archaeology, especially when you're talking about Egyptian history, is immediately now consigned to the realms of the lunatic fringe. In other words, because this happened in history over hundreds of years that followed, and even in the modern times, Anybody who says, well, yeah, the Bible, you're a lunatic. You're a loony, loony, but you're out there. You You have no academic intelligence whatsoever. You're crazy for believing that stuff. That's what it's saying. Now, if that's true, we've got a problem. Because Peter, one of the original disciples, in his first letter in the New Testament that we call 1 Peter, declares to us in 1 Peter 1, Verses 20 through 21, he says, above all. Now, mind you, he's he's talking to believers. He's talking to me. He's talking to you. He says, hey, you believers out there, above all, above everything you understand about Christianity and about God, understand this. He says, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, here's what he's saying. He's saying, above all, understand this, set your roots on this, that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Now we got a problem. If what academic, Damia says is true, and the biblical historical events are false, then the Bible can't be inspired, Word of God. And neither was Moses who wrote the book of Genesis. So we got a problem, don't we? But here's the real problem: Yesubius' conclusions were based on Manetho's spurious conclusions. What new historians, they're looking back at this and they're noticing something. They're noticing that Manetho was writing hundreds, even thousands of years after the events in Egypt took place. He wasn't a contemporary of it. He's looking back hundreds and thousands of years. Also, at the time Eusebius is writing, none of Manetho's works exist anymore. There's no copies anymore. They're lost antiquity. And so they're, they're, he's piecing it together. And other early historians, ancient historians like Josephus and Africanus and, and Syncellus, they're all piecing this Egyptian history thing together because there's no real accurate records of what Manetho ever said. But here's the kicker. Watch this one. It appears that Manetho, in his chronology of Egypt, was trying to prove to the Greeks that Egypt was the most ancient of all civilizations. Apparently, at this time in human history, there was a big controversy going on around the world as who was the most ancient culture. The Mesopotamians were saying, we're the most ancient culture. The Egyptians say, no, we're the most ancient culture. And everyone, they're having this contest among each other to see who is the most ancient of all the cultures. Well, Mentho is a priest in Egypt, and he's trying to prove to the Greeks who have just conquered under Alexander the Great, have just conquered Egypt. And the Ptolemaic uh, general, uh, General Ptolemy, is put in charge of it, and after Alexander the Great dies, he and his family assimilate into the Egyptian culture, and the Egyptian language, and the Egyptian religion. In fact, they declare themselves pharaohs. The most famous of the Ptolemaic pharaohs was Queen Cleopatra the lover of Julius Caesar and Mark Anthony. So he's trying to prove, no, it's Egypt, we're the oldest. Now what appears, as they're looking back at this, is it appears that Manetho was cooking the books to try to prove that they were the oldest civilization. And he tried to stretch out the history of Egypt as far and as wide as he could get away with by doing things like adding years which never existed, by things like pairing up kings who were co-regents. They reigned together and claiming they reigned separately. He, he did stuff like uh, he, was, he took dynasties as they were proceeding one after another when in fact many of them overlapped each other. Now with that in mind, it throws the whole thing off because Eusebius was counting on the historical accuracy, the academic accuracy of Manetho's chronology. Now, in 1950s, a guy comes on the scene by the name of Emmanuel Velikovsky. Emanuel Velikovsky is a Russian. He's a Jew. 1950s, Cold War's going on. All right? And he begins to try to be an Biblical apologetic. He's trying to defend the Bible. And in his work, Ages in Chaos, he argues that all the catastrophic events in the Bible, the flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the the, uh, Babel, the Tower of Babel, all that he said really did happen. And in fact, it happened just like the Bible said it happened. This, This is groundbreaking. Now he goes on to say... He says that modern scholars have misidentifying all this because they didn't understand the nature of the Bible, and more so, because those monument, monumental events were kind of erased, they were effaced from history because an erroneous and virtually arbitrary chronology had become the accepted scholarship. In other words, he said it all got messed up because modern scholarship jumped in on Eusebius's false conclusions about the history of Egypt. The histories of other ancient lands, Velikovsky goes on, had been reconstructed in line with the disordered Egyptian chronology. In other words, since the academic world put Egypt as the focal point of all human history and civilizations, they began to have to reconstruct Mesopotamian history. And Hebrew history and all kinds, they had to start trying to make it all fit that pattern, fit that timetable. But this modern history, Valakasi goes on, of the ancient world had virtually no point of contact with the biblical and classical histories and clashed repeatedly with them. In other words, when, it, when historians started looking at all these different ancient histories, they couldn't bring them into, into they couldn't have synergy. They were, they were contradicting each other and they were clashing with each other and everything was, was not fitting into place. Now, I, I'm going to tell you that Velikovsky was a very uh, controversial figure in all of this. And he wasn't readily accepted by the academic world. He had some other works like Worlds in Collision, and he was trying to prove that all these biblical catastrophes happened, but he had some kind of out-there theories about that as far as other planets' involvement in their revolution around the solar system and all that kind of thing. But what he did, even though he was rejected and he was just vilified by the academic world, is he opened the door that other more credible historians have walked through. They say, "No, wait a minute. Let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater here. He might, have, he might be on to something. For example, Sir Alan Gardner, an Egyptologist from, from England, says this. Even when full use has been made of the king's list, that's Manetho's list, and such subsidiary sources as have survived, the indisputable dynastic framework of Egyptian history shows lamentable gaps and many a doubtful attribution. His conclusion, what is proudly advertised as Egyptian history is merely a collection of rags and tatters. He says there's really no substance to it. Dr. Colin Renfrew of Cambridge University in England, who wrote the foreword to Peter James' book, Centuries of Darkness, says this, this disquieting book draws attention to a crucial period in world history and to the very shaky nature of the dating. The whole chronological framework upon which our current interpretations rest. The existing chronologies for that crucial phase in human history are in error by several centuries. And that, in consequence, history is going to have to be rewritten. He says, everything that we've based everything on is wrong. Now, as Aston and Down have done, when you go to a more contemporary, a more modern and adjusted chronology of Egypt, which in originally Manetho trying to prove that Egypt was the oldest civilization had dated them back to 3000 BC. Well, in fact, as you start revisiting it, it's probably more like 2080 BC, a thousand years different. When you begin to look at it from that filter, guess what happens? Egyptian history and biblical history just come right together. Guess what happens? Egyptian history and Mesopotamian history just come right together. Right together. How about that? Now, our question, though, that's the longest introduction I'm ever going to give you in a sermon. <laughs> but I have to set that groundwork, because you got to understand where this is coming from. Our question is, so was this character, Joseph, that we just spent three weeks talking about, was he at a real, live, historical, profoundly impactful leader or was he just a legend? Now, with what we're talking about in mind, and again, I repeat, this is controversial in many circles. This is an emerging, this is an evolving study. What if a Joseph character could be discovered, could be identified within Egyptian ancient history? What if that could happen? Well, maybe... That might give us more confidence that the Bible really is the inspired Word of God and that God really did inspire Moses, who wrote Genesis, to write exactly what, how things really went, right? Meet King Joser. Now, I've listed some other names because depending on the historian who's writing about him, the other names are there and I can't pronounce them, so I'm not going to try. I can do Joser. King Joser. Egyptian king, came to be regarded his reign as one of the golden ages of all Egyptian history. He was king in the third dynasty. The first dynasty being Menes. He was the first king. Third dynasty now. Later, he was regarded as a paragon of wisdom. In fact, later on in Egyptian inscriptions, he's referred to as the wise one. Ultimately, he's recognized as one of the greatest pharaohs that ever existed in Egypt. Now, now, mind you, understand, this is according to Egyptian inscriptions, Egyptian historical records. In fact, centuries after his death, he was declared to be an Egyptian deity. He was one of their most powerful, impactful of all kings. All right, you're not, now, you ready for something? Want to see something cool? One of the things... That broke him out among the other pharaohs, that led them to call him the wise one, was that he led Egypt through seven years of a devastating famine. That's one of the things. In fact, it is proven, it's written in rock, it's carved in rock that lists the historical fact of the seven year famine and it's listed as to occurred in the 18th year of Joser's reign prior to the great famine get this Joser had a dream a warning from the Nile that this impending famine was going to come wait a minute did i read something kind of like that in the book of genesis what was that genesis 41 Pharaoh had a dream. He was standing by the what? <laughs> and all of this emerges out of a dream that's birthed from the Nile. Now, Joser didn't know what it meant. So, Egyptian history says that a commoner was called in to help interpret the dream for King Joser. And also subsequently helped him deal with the famine. So impactful was this character that King Joser promotes this wise dream interpreter, this seer, to the seer of all of Egypt. He makes him second in command of the whole kingdom. Meet Imhotep. Imhotep is a guy who comes on the scene with King Joser. Flavius Joseph, that. Hebrew historian, who was kind of a Roman collaborator, writes about this. He says, during the reign of Pharaoh, Joser, third Egyptian dynasty, lived Imhotep, with a reputation among Egyptians like the Greek god of medicine. Manetho even wondered whether Imhotep could have been a real person because he has so many outstanding qualities and talents, a very special person who appears in the history of Egypt. Josephus says, this guy is such an amazing character. That Manetho even wondered if he really ever really existed. Because, I mean, no one could be this good. Josephus goes on. On one foundation of the step pyramid in Saqqara. The step pyramid is the very first of all the pyramids. The name of Pharaoh, Joser and Imhotep. Chancellor of the king of lower Egypt. Chief under the king. Administrator of the great palace. Hereditary lord. High priest of Heliopolis. Imhotep, the builder. I mean, they're just going on and on about this Emotep. Now, could Emotep be biblical Joseph? With the new chronology, could he possibly be Joseph? Well, let's look at some comparisons of what the Bible says about Joseph and what ancient Egyptian history and records say about Imhotep. Both were appointed second in command of the kingdom. Imhoptep under Joseph under whoever the Pharaoh was. It doesn't identify him. Both are interpreter of dreams, of a specific dream that Pharaoh had. Both saw seven years of famine, and they were responsible ultimately for having created the plan that fed the people through the seven years of famine. Both had stored up during abundant years for the seven years of famine. Both instituted an income tax of one-fifth. Remember, we saw how Joseph first took their money, then he took their livestock, then he took their land and, and their servitude. After that, they had nothing more. Joseph said, all right, here's how it's going to go. When the land starts producing, every year, a fifth of your harvest goes to Pharaoh. It was an income tax. Both married into the priesthood of On. Remember, when when he was promoted by Pharaoh, he was given a signet ring, and he was given a robe, and he was given a gold chain, he was given a chariot, and he was given a wife. And the wife was the daughter of the high priest of On. Both became overseers of the public works. In fact, in the Great Steppe Pyramid, you know what they find in other places of ancient Egypt? They find these great depositories, these great grain depositories that had been built at some time. Each one was one of 12 siblings. And each one lived to be 110 years old. Ah, just a coincidence. And in fact, Sweeney says historians, of course, have long been aware of the striking resemblances between Inhoptep and Joseph, and a great deal has been written on the subject. In fact, but they historians have seen this all along. They, they've seen Joseph and they've seen Inhoptep, and they go, "Man, this this is this is wild." But here's the problem. They wouldn't have undoubtedly recognized the identity of the two men a long time ago, but the erroneous chronology, which separated them by over a thousand years, confused the issues. Why couldn't they put the pieces of the puzzle together? Because they bought into the erroneous chronology of Eusebius and Manetho. That put them a thousand years apart. They said they can't possibly be the same person. But when you modify that erroneous timeline, guess what happens? they come into perfect harmony. In fact, English historian Tom Chetwynd, he kind of got the whole debate going again. And he put Imhotep in the old kingdom, in the third dynasty. And and he's not a believer of the new chronology either. But in spite of that, his conclusions were that the parallels between Imhotep and Joseph are sufficiently compelling to overrule the chronology issues. He said, they've got to be the same guy. So increasingly, the academic world, many are coming on board, not all have come on board, with the idea that the Egyptian in was biblical Joseph. You want to hear just a little more? Are you with me? Yeah, Get this. Genesis 41, 46. Now, if we, if we can embrace the new chronology, if we can embrace the idea that in Hopetep was Joseph. Now, Genesis 41, 46 tells us that Joseph was 30 years old when he entered into the, the service of Pharaoh, when he was promoted to be the seer of all of Egypt, right? He was 30 years old. Okay, that's followed by what? Seven years of plenty. He's 37, right? That's followed by seven years of famine, right? He's 44. But he lived to be 110. What did he do with the next 66 years of his life when the whole famine thing was done? What happened over the next 66 years? The Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible tells us that eventually he dies. But if Joseph is Imhotep, Egyptian history says a lot more about Imhoptep. For example, it says that he was thought to be the architect of the first pyramid, the step pyramid in Saqqara. He's thought to be the one who built the first pyramid. He was the architect of it, and it was dedicated to King Djoser. He's also credited with the use of columns for the first time in architecture. And again, when archaeologists were looking at that step pyramid and they saw columns, they couldn't make sense of it because columns didn't come for another thousand years. How come columns are all of a sudden here, all this so far back? Well, they were going on the wrong chronology. When you accept the new chronology, the use of columns was starting, and it may have started in Egypt. Imhotep is also known as the father of Egyptian medicine. In fact, he was the first person... Known to use the papyrus school, and Egyptian historians suggest that he may have been the one who invented the use of papyrus. Beyond that, King Joser appears to be the first king to have been embalmed. Imhotep may have invented the Egyptian embalming, in other words, the mummy. Joser was the first mummy. And it suggests that that Imhoptep was the one who invented the system of mummification. He's the father of Egyptian medicine. And in fact, when Jacob dies, who have now come down to Egypt, it's the Bible says he was embalmed. When Joseph dies, it says he was embalmed and given an Egyptian burial. Now, now get this. Circumcision was widely practiced among Egyptians from the third dynasty onward, from the time of Joser, from the time of Imhotep, all of a sudden the Egyptians start being circumcised. Where in the world would that come from? Who were the first people to practice circumcision on planet Earth? The Jews, the Hebrews, father of medicine, health issues. Two archeologists were digging next to each other. One was a, a new, right out of school archeologist. The other was an old veteran seasoned archeologist. And the young archeologist was lamenting to the experienced man, he says, you know, the Bible claims about history are so lame. And the older archeologist looks at him and says, well, if I were you, I wouldn't rubbish the Bible. And I said, why? What? I mean, what are you talking? He says, he says, well, it just has a habit of proving itself to be right after all. Why is that true? This is just one instant. I could, I could stand here easily for the next hour just off of my memory and share archaeological discoveries that have proved the Bible to be accurate, that have for centuries been ridiculed. Let me tell you why. Because Peter is right. That the Bible is not a book written by men. It is the inspired word of God. Now what does that mean? What do we take home with this today? Here's what I want you to take home. What Paul encouraged Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17. He said, all scripture is God breathed. Say that with me. All scripture is God breathed. Say it again. All it's god breathe? Now, understand that. That's what Peter said. Back, he said, above all, understand this. All Scripture is God-breathed. It goes on to say, and is useful for teaching. You know what that means? That means when you come here every week and we open the Bible, that what you're hearing is profitable because it's God-breathed. It's not, it's not some preacher. It's not some man. It's not some teacher. It's the Bible, and the Bible is god breathe. And therefore, what it says, for example, about eternal life, about eternal forgiveness, about how you get to heaven, when Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Understand, that's not Jesus' opinion. That's God breathed. That's inspired by God. It's true. There's no other way. When Paul says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved that's not just his opinion, that's god breathe. When you hear, and you hear things that, that God has revealed in his word about how to, once you have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, how to prepare for eternity, how to get ready for what's to come, you can mark it down that it's just not some church's opinion, it's not a denomination's opinion, it's been God-breathed and God-tested. It stood the test of time and you can take it to the bank. It's your guide for living. It's your guide for life. It's your guide for eternity. Amen. And every now and then, people rise up and say, oh, it's not true. Whether it's an archaeologist, whether it's a historian, whether it's a scientist, you mark it down. The Bible just has this habit of proving itself to be right after all. Over and over and over and over and over again. Listen, you can live that book. You can love that book. Saturate yourself with its truth. Saturate yourself with its promises. Joseph, leader or legend? I'll let you decide. Let's bow our heads. Oh, listen. Listen to me. God has preserved his word That God-breathed manuscript, 66 books, God-inspired men over hundreds of years to write. And although it's written over hundreds and hundreds of years, it all comes seemingly together. It's accurate, it's beautiful. And God has given it to me. God has given it to you so that we don't have to wonder about whether we can go to heaven or not. We don't have to wonder about, are we going to be ready to see God when this life passes? God has revealed everything that we need to know, and we can take it to the bank. We can count on it with all our being that that word is god Breathe, And no matter who challenges it, that book just somehow has a habit of proving itself right over and over again god i thank you for your word and god i thank you that although tyrannical kings have tried to burn it and that academic societies have tried to ridicule it and that other forces have tried to quash it god you've protected it and over and over again it's proven itself to be true God, help us to own that. Help us to embrace that. Help us to carve that into our minds. Carve it into our hearts. Carve it into our souls. Help us to be bold and not be ashamed of it. God, help us to give glory to you. Help us not to rejoice when we hear it, but apply it to our lives. God, use us as lights in this dark world, in a challenging world where where your word is increasingly gonna be under attack. Lord, thank you that you give us these little glimpses, these little snapshots, these these little flashes that once again demonstrate to us that, you know what? That old book has a habit of proving itself right over and over again. Use it to encourage us in Jesus' name, amen.